I heard about those guys, the paper boys. Gosh, you really don't want to fuck with them. The paper boy, yes, that's crazy. Welcome to No Cap Radio. Sit back, pour yourself a drink, and then enjoy this moment brought to you by the Paperboy Club. Let's rise and shine. Hi, Max. Thanks for being here. You are very experienced in Web3 and art, and uh, you launched your uh, very own collection called uh, Liquidity Art, which is a collection of photography, amazing one. And uh, we'll talk about uh, all this, but first, may you maybe introduce yourself for those who don't know you? I would be happy to do that. In Web3, I'm known as Liquidity Art, In real life, my name is Max, and you told me a moment ago that's also your real-life name, so that's that's a lovely coincidence. Yeah, a couple of Maxes here. You know, I don't know how far back I should go because I've been around for a long time. You know, I'm not sort of your typical Web3 person. A lot of, you know, a lot of the people we deal with in Web3 are on the younger side, and I'm you know, I'm on the older side. I'm in my 60s already. So, but anyhow, I'm Canadian, born and raised in Canada. I've always, even as a child, I traveled with my parents quite a bit. My parents are both European by ancestry and background. So we traveled to Europe quite often. And so I've always traveled the world and been fortunate that way. And also when I, let's say in my teens, late teens, as I started to get into adulthood, I traveled a lot, traveled in mainly in tropical countries. And I've ended up living in a beautiful tropical place here in Bali. I live in Bali, Indonesia now. I've been here for about 15 years. I sort of retired here, had a bit of an early retirement. And yeah, I mean, the photography collection that I do is something that's born here in Bali and something I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes. But yeah, so I'm I'm an expat now. I'm a Canadian expat living in paradise. You live in Bali. What made you choose and love Indonesia? Well, I'm going to say, first of all, it's Bali is very different from most of Indonesia. It is, yes, indeed. Yeah, I think if I, I know you've lived, I think you said you lived in Jakarta for a while. And, you know, it's partly the religion, partly the culture that makes Bali very, very different from most of Indonesia. And I think, you know, if I'd landed somewhere else in Indonesia, I might not love it as much as as I love it here. But it's just, you know, I think for many people, Bali is sort of on their, you know, on their travel bucket list. I think it's a place that has, you know, a magical feel to it and a sound to it. And, And there's actually, you know, with good reason, because the culture here is is unbelievably strong and quite exciting and people live it every single day of their lives based on you know on the on the religion that they have here the hindu it's a form of hinduism it's basically spirit worship and you know the the people really do live it every single day of their lives and so it's an exciting place to come to it's a beautiful place you know there's volcanoes and rice fields and beaches seaside cliffs and the architecture you know there's they call it the island of the gods and there's a million different million different 
I don't want to say a million, but literally thousands and thousands of temples because everybody actually has a temple on their property, sometimes more than one. You know, it's quite aptly called the Island of the Gods. And so it's just a place that I was drawn to and maybe had heard about and always wanted to go to. And when I started doing some travels in Southeast Asia, uh, it was one of the places that I came to, and that was that was a long time ago. That was back in 1987 was actually the first time that I came here. And it was a very different place than it is now, as you can imagine. So many years have passed, and, and a lot of progress, and a lot of tourism, and, and a lot of growth here. But it has maintained its not real innocence, but it's it's maintained the power of the culture and the people are really, really amazing. So I fell in love with it way back then and I didn't get a chance to come back for many years, but came back again, I think it was in 2002 and then started coming, you know, every couple of years as part of the trips that I was doing through Southeast Asia and eventually... It wasn't really a plan to live here, but you know, I had some time between basically I retired from the practice of law and my wife at the time, who was from Austria, she was very much interested in going back to live in Austria. And so that was, that was essentially our plan. We were moving from Canada to Austria and we had a few months in between and we decided to come here to Bali because it's actually where the two of us had met some years previous. And so we came to Bali and there was no real plan to to buy property or to settle down in any way, but it just kind of happened. We just started looking at properties and really fell in love with the place. You know, for me, it was over again, falling in love with it over and over again, because I always really loved it here. And so, yeah, so that's how... That's how we ended up here. And even though she and I have parted ways, she still lives here in Bali. And we have a son together who we co-parent and he's grown up here in Bali. And so, yeah, it's quite an interesting story and not one that I would have predicted. But I have to say that I'm I'm really happy here. Uh, you know, the climate is much better than Canada, at least the part of Canada where I lived, and actually better than most of Canada. It's, <laughs> Canada is an amazing country. It's a beautiful country. It's a wonderful place, but it has pretty long winters, and I prefer the tropical, the tropical climate that we have here in Bali. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to visit Canada, to be honest. And, but Bali is an impressive land surrounded by water. As far back as I can remember, you can see snake in the in the sea eruptions from the Krakatoa and the artistic culture that is both fantastic and exotic with those uh, shadow theaters. It's something that uh, inspires your artistic uh, work. I read a story about your uh, very first photography of this uh, drop of water. It was uh, in a valley during a storm. Yes, yes, that's true. And just before I tell that story, I think, you know, you've touched on something that really makes Bali also what it is, especially for Western people, because it's always drawn artists. And, you know, it's been a beautiful synergy between 
the Western people that have come here and the Balinese people that inspired them and then the Western people inspiring the Balinese people in terms of art. The Balinese are very, very gifted. They work very well with their hands and, and they're artistically very gifted. And, you know, for whatever reason, many artists from the Western world ended up here and a lot of them stayed here. And, you know, they built studios and they worked with local people. And as you've said, and that, you know, that has continued because Bali just seems to inspire people that way. It really brings out that inner spark, that artistic spark. And, you know, I don't know if that's what, you know, what happened with me, but certainly the, the photography that I do, and maybe I'll just sort of describe it briefly because most people have seen that kind of photography, but maybe don't, you know, they don't know that that's something that I'm doing, but it's high speed photography of liquids in motion. In essence, that's, that's what it is. The pictures are taken in the dark. The ones that are in my collection are, they're taken in, in a dark studio, you know, with actually quite sophisticated timing equipment and flashes and also camera equipment and you know you shoot straight into a laptop so you can see exactly what's going on so it's basically you know you're freezing you're freezing a moment in life you're taking a very minute slice of nature and you're exposing it you know, these are things that happen around us all day long but we don't see it in that way because it happens too quickly. And so the high speed element, you know, allows us to, to really dive into it and to see things that we can't see with the naked eye. So getting back to how it started for me, back to this, you know, this, this story about a storm that you alluded to, Bali is a tropical place. It rains a lot here, particularly in the rainy season. And, you know, often there's no warning. And so what happened one particular afternoon out on my rented scooter, just doing some exploring, and the skies opened up and it started raining very hard. And I, you know, I turned around and headed in the direction of my little hotel that I was staying at. And I got back there. I was completely drenched. And I decided, well... I'm wet already. I may as well go for a swim. So I jumped in the pool and it was still raining very hard. And I was swimming with the water at eye level and the raindrops were still, you know, hitting the pool water. And it was the very first time that I had ever noticed what happens when a drop of water hits, you know, more water. And I was fascinated by it immediately and it you know i i've over the years came to understand what happens it goes you know the drop of water goes through a very defined sequence you know first there's a crown that forms and we've seen those from beer commercials and things like that and then that crown sort of collapses the water drop pushes under the surface a little bit and because water is elastic, that drop gets shot back up and it forms a column. 
and then that column breaks down into little droplets and those droplets come back down and eventually join up with the you know, with the rest of the water again so i was really fascinated by this process i had just sort of gotten back into photography at that point and i had one of the earlier digital cameras that was available at the time this was when digital photography was really just coming onto the market and i knew that i needed to use flash a flash to have any chance of capturing you know what i what i thought was maybe happening here and so i waited until it got dark and i put my little camera in a plastic bag and i went back to the pool and at that point it had stopped raining hard but it was still dripping off the grass roof into the pool so it was a little more controlled let's say and that's when i i took my first liquidity art photographs yes and this very first photography is available on your i mean you shared it on your uh, on your discord i i saw it so we'll share all, all your uh, socials and people will be able to to see that there is a uh, something very interesting in your work is that uh, those drops of water falling into the water and then get back up is something the human eye cannot catch because it's very very brief and your work gives the the chance to uh, to see that and uh, in some way to experience that those ultra high speed flash photography requires a, a very technical i mean high technical how do you say that in english equipment in a studio do you have a studio uh, only dedicated to this what kind of uh, equipment do you use yeah you know when i first started i was on a, a trip to bali that's where this all began and then i came back to canada where i was living and working at the time and you know i just really wanted to do something with this and so i did buy uh you know a single lens reflex digital camera bought a canon 10d or something at that time you know this is this goes back 20 22 years or something like that and just a you know a normal flash that you put on the camera and i just you know i went into my basement and set up you know set up the camera on a tripod and i had a cable release and and i was using at first i was using like an eye dropper and just a bowl you know and then i i put something dark in the background to try and get some contrast and it was a really humbling and frustrating experience because you would you know you squeeze the eye dropper and in the other hand i had the cable release for the camera and you try to time it so that you could get some of the effects that you knew were going on and it was really really difficult like out of 50 shots i might get four or five where the drop was even in the frame let alone doing you know what i knew it could do so the solution for that was to get equipment and more equipment and i started with a timing device called the time machine and what it did the drop would fall through an infrared sensor 
and it would start a timer going. And then you could dial in on this time machine, you could dial in exactly how long after the drop passed through there that you wanted the picture to be taken. And so then you could, you know, you could really literally dial in on the exact nanosecond that you wanted. And so that helped a lot. But then I discovered that I was getting sort of somewhat blurry pictures because even though a flash, you know, a a normal flash might fire at, let's say, one eight thousandth or one twelve thousandth of a second, the duration of the burst of light. If you really want to freeze the motion, you need something that is even shorter duration than that. And as you get into short duration, then you have to increase the intensity of the light. So I did some research and I ended up with some flash units. They're actually designed for nature photography, outdoor nature photography, to freeze the beating of a hummingbird's wings. So we all know how fast, you know, I mean, when a hummingbird is, you don't even see the wings because they're moving so fast. And these flashes, they fire with such a short duration that they can freeze that motion. And so I got a couple of those flashes and then I really sort of started to get into business a little bit. You know, that's when I could get some of the the results that I was really, really looking for. So you're right. Equipment is a very integral part of this of this kind of photography. And luckily I was I was working at the time. This was just a hobby. And, you know, I was working as a lawyer, so I did have a little bit of disposable income to, you know, to devote to purchasing equipment. And I think by the time I was done, I probably had spent, you know, by the t- I, got a new, I got a new camera, I got, you know, a beautiful macro lens and a long, like a telephoto macro lens and light stands and, and, tripods and yeah i mean I, I went a little bit crazy i'm sure i invested you know 15 or 20 thousand dollars in equipment over the years and then when we moved to bali because in in canada i really just did this in a room in my basement and it was a carpeted room and if i had a you know if i spilled a bunch of water it wasn't always that easy to deal with so when we moved to bali i built a house here and I decided to, you know, put in a room that was a proper studio with concrete floors and drains. And um, so I could splash around to, to my heart's content. But yeah, you're right. Equipment is key, is a key part of this kind of photography. It's very technical and, and can be quite frustrating at times, but the rewards, rewards were there. Yes, for for sure. At, at this point, uh, let's talk about uh, your Instagram um, profile. Uh, it's uh, actually liquidity underscore art. On this profile, you, you share those photograph phot- photographies. It's not only about um, drop of water falling in in uh, water. There's a uh, work and plays with colors, background, 
you get uh, all uh, all the work around uh, water too and especially I, i've been amazed by by a photography you you did and there is on the background uh, a flower this flower can be seen right inside the drop of water while it goes up and the drop of water acts somehow like a lens and you can see this flower just in the middle of the drop that's absolutely amazing so you don't only work with uh, water what other for example backgrounds colors or uh, or even uh, liquid uh, inspire you and uh, do you work with uh, some other kind of liquids i see that you work with soap for example yeah that's true this photography this high speed flash photography you know sort of the pioneer of this is a fellow by the name of Harold Edgerton and he did it in the 1920s or the 1930s And he used milk. That was sort of his liquid of choice. And, you know, I mean, I think there's a few different reasons for that. It's not clear. So you can, it's more, it's easier to see what's going on. And milk is also a little bit thicker than, than water. So it moves a little bit slower. And so I think that's why he chose milk. I started out doing water, you know, because... You know, this project was sort of born from rain, born from the Bali rains. And so I did start with water, but I did try a whole bunch of different things, including milk. You know, I did milk and food coloring, which was really quite interesting. I used oil quite early on, actually. I, I used oil because I thought, like I was having trouble capturing what I wanted to. And I thought, well, maybe if I use a slower moving liquid, you know, higher viscosity, it would make it easier. But it doesn't, oil doesn't really do the same exciting things that water does or milk does or a thinner liquid. I used paint. I did some with paint. I used all kinds of things. I used car polishing compound is sort of a paste. I used all kinds of things. And then when it comes to soap, like I'm not sure where I read or saw that, you know, a drop of water will pass through a soap bubble without popping it until the soap bubble gets really thin. And then it will eventually, a drop of water will actually pop it. But, you know, in the same way, you can put a pin through a soap bubble as long as the pin is wet. You know, a wet pin will pass through a soap bubble, and but a dry pin will pop it instantly. So I did do some with soap bubbles where I had drops of water falling through, and then of course they'll they'll go through and they'll they'll splash, and then the splashes come back out. It's really quite interesting. And then I did some with soap film, so it's not a bubble anymore. It was soapy water and I, I had a, a small square that I would dip in and then I would hang that and take pictures of that and then I would do interesting things like blow across the surface of the of the soap film to give patterns to the iridescent colors that you see. I ended up I had a gallery here in Bali for I think it was seven, about seven or eight years that it was open. And I called it Infinity Gallery because 
to me what you can do with this kind of photography. The ideas are really infinite. It's just almost anything you can think of. You know, I, I did some work with fire. I wanted to at some point, never really got around to it. I wanted to heat up like a metal plate or something and have a drop of water hit that and try and capture the moment when, you know, when it impacted that. Anyhow, what I'm trying to get at is you can do so many things. It's like it's almost limitless. And that's why I ended up calling the gallery Infinity Gallery, because it's just boundless opportunities in this kind of work. This is very impressive, what you told about the soap bubble. There's a question I wanted to ask uh, to someone like you. I, I don't know if my question is dumb or... or When I was a, a kid, very young, I uh, read a book, uh, so some kind of book of physics or so, something, that told that when a drop of water falls into the water, it comes up and then back down into the water. But actually... It holds that the drop of water that goes up is exactly the same than the one that falls into the water. Like, the drop of water first goes into the water, then jump up and go back into the water uh, then. Is it true? Or when a drop of water... I don't know if what I say is understandable, but... Or does a drop of water, when it falls into the water, actually goes down into it and there is another drop of water that uh, goes up? Is it exactly the same? I think it is the same. I think there's some mixing, a little bit of mixing that goes on, like on the edges. You know, it's not, it has, there has to be a little bit of mixing. But I think you're right. I don't know where you read it, but the drop that goes down and you know it gets pushed back up because of the the elasticity and then it forms a column it is the same as as the water that's coming down i mean i i haven't done any experiments but working with food coloring and milk and different liquids allows you to see you know what's going on and and how much mixing you get and you know i think what you read is correct i don't if there is a little bit of mixing that goes on sort of on the edge But primarily, I think it's the same drop that gets shot up and then comes back down. And by the way, you know, this is something that I don't think anybody, unless you're into this kind of photography or maybe, you know, slow motion video of this kind of thing, you're not going to realize that, you know, so we have, we've talked about the drop going down, getting pushed up, and then there's, it's a column. And when that column stops going up, when it runs out of momentum up, then what happens, water always wants to be round. You know, water always wants to form into a drop. That's just, you know, it's physics. And so that column breaks into little droplets and those droplets come back down to the surface of the water, but they don't, sometimes they do, but not always does the water rejoin the body of water right away. What happens sometimes is that these tiny little droplets float around on the surface of the water and they're separated from the water by a very thin layer of air because as soon as the water touches the water, it's going to get sucked back in. 
but they float around on the surface, these perfectly spherical droplets of water float around on the surface until this layer of air gets pushed to the side and the water touches the water and then it gets sucked back in. But even more interestingly, it doesn't all happen at once. So the drop of water, maybe half of it goes back in or less than half of it. And then it, the droplet forms a droplet again, sort of snaps shut, bounces up a little bit and then comes back down and does the same thing. So it's like it might be three or four times before it gets completely, you know, sucked back into, into the water. I call these little droplets, I call them skimmers because they really do skim around on the surface. And I would invite people, the next time you're having a shower, the next time it's raining and you're, you know, maybe there's a puddle, if it's deep enough or you're close to a swimming pool, just look carefully and watch what happens. And I think you will see some of these little skimmers. You will see them. And, you, you know, if you can't really picture them, check out my Discord. You'll see pictures of, of them there. And then maybe you'll be able to spot them in real life. But that was one of the most fascinating things for me when I discovered these skimmers because it just I didn't you know I had no idea something like this existed it's uh, impressive once again because uh, like to uh, we have an expression in French uh, I, I don't know if you use it uh, in English too but to we, we used to say that two drops of water look exactly the same but when it comes into the water and there is this phenomenon it I see on your pictures, I, I'm looking uh, right now on, on the, your Instagram, actually, but what happens when it drops on the water seems to never be exactly the same. The way that it comes into the water are always, always different. So, yeah, this is amazing. Those photographs are amazing. You talked about, uh, so you have a gallery you're running a gallery currently in Bali. You were actually a successful photographer. I mean, from an in-real-life point of view, you you are a traditional photographer. How and when did you come into Web3? Because now you're running an NFT collection. What attracted you into Web3? As an artist. Yeah, let me backtrack and, and just correct a couple of things. I mean, the gallery is no longer open. It was open for about eight years and, and it's it's been shut for several years. Uh, things changed here in Bali in terms of the type of people that were coming. And so it wasn't just wasn't feasible to keep the gallery going. And as far as being, you know, I mean, I, I do this particular kind of photography And I've been into photography, you know, since I was a kid. My, my father gave me a camera when I was, you know, like nine or 10 years old. And I loved photography from the very beginning. Of course, it was film photography back then. I worked in a camera store during my high school years part time and, you know, had a color darkroom set up. I shot with medium format cameras for a while. So I've always, always been into photography. And then when digital photography came out, I, I really I jumped into that. And that's how this whole this whole water drop thing started. You, you couldn't do this kind of photography 
using a film camera. I mean, you could, but there's so much trial and error involved that you would, you know, you would need miles of uh, a film to do it. So it's really something that almost has to be done with digital photography. So, but, you know, I wouldn't call myself an accomplished photographer. I'm I'm good at this kind of photography, I guess. It seems to have developed a little bit of a life of, of its own. And, you know, when I closed the gallery, and I have thousands and thousands of these images, and, you know, the things at the gallery were, were quite successful for quite a few years. And, you know, people really seem to love this this kind of photography, and I, I really enjoyed talking to people about it as well. And so when, when I closed the gallery, I always had in the back of my head that I'd like to use these images somehow. And, you know, I thought, okay, maybe screensavers or, you know, maybe there's somebody out there who would like to, you know, represent me as an artist and this kind of work, but that never really happened. But then when NFTs came on the scene, and that was, you know, my first exposure to NFTs was when Beeple's released his, uh, Beeple released his, what's it called, 69, I, I can't remember, the, you know, the, the, I think I'm thinking of 69 million because that's what it sold for, the 5,000 days or whatever, the giant JPEG was built, you know, with, was just broken down into many, many, many other JPEGs. That's kind of how I heard about NFTs and I thought to myself immediately, this is kind of perfect for, you know, for the number of images that I have. And, you know, there's many different kinds of images in this, um, in this type of photography that I do. So I thought it would work well as an, as an NFT. So, or as an NFT collection. So that's kind of what brought me into, well, I mean, I was already in web three, let's say, trading Bitcoin and collecting Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and things like that, and, and also the shit coins as they came out. So, I mean, I was already in the space, but as far as NFTs goes, that's kind of how I got drawn into it. And the collection that I'm, my collection hasn't actually launched yet. It's essentially ready to go, just sort of waiting for, waiting for the markets to improve a little bit. But I do have a collection of 808 of these liquidity art images of all different kinds and um, just waiting for the right time to to spring them on the space, so to speak. But it's like most of us, for first we, we came into this for trading opportunities and collecting Bitcoins, Ethereums and, uh, and cryptos because it was the point back in the days. And, uh, and did I do think that NFTs and um, Web3 gives opportunity to, to artists, for, for sure. Your collection also invites people to question themselves about water as a resource and, uh, and its uh, scarcity. Is it something you, you really want people to be aware of through your, your work? Or is it just for the beauty of art? No, I think there's many elements in the beginning and still now call it art meets science because it's definitely showing you things in the physical world that you can't see otherwise so it's a it's an interesting investigation into the physical world 
So there's that element, but you don't necessarily need to even be interested in that or to dive into that. Maybe you don't care about physics or chemistry, viscosity or terminal velocity, all of the different things that are actually happening there. Maybe you really do only care about the beauty of it. And I try to appeal to that side of, you know, to that interest by giving different backgrounds, you know, some of them being natural flowers and fabrics, colored paper, all kinds of different things. So, you know, when you look at the collection, I think you'll see that from a, you know, a visual standpoint, it's pleasing to the eye. So that's, you know, another element. But then what you've raised is, is another very important element, I think. And that just gets people to think about and to focus on water. And water is the most basic life-sustaining force that we have. You know, people can go a long time without food, but they can only go a very short time without water. And, you know, it's clean water is becoming more and more scarce over time. And it's a, it's a resource that needs to be managed. And in order for it to be managed, it needs to be recognized as something that's of critical importance to us. And if my photography gets people thinking about water on a deeper level, then you know, then I'm very excited about that. And then you can even take it another step. And this is something that, you know, is I've read about it, but I'm still trying to understand that, you know, that water is something that really connects humanity in a way, that there's a different plane of existence almost that water has this connectivity between people even if you're not you're not sharing the water it's not a physical thing it's more of a metaphysical thing and it's not really something i'm i'm not explaining it well and it's it's difficult to really to put into words but there are people that study the energy of water and the memory of water and you know taking water and you know there are people that put crystals and things like that into their drinking water. There are people that talk to their drinking water. There are people that put, you know, labels like love and peace and harmony on their drinking water. And they believe that water can absorb, understand, carry those energies. And so, you know, again, it's infinite what you can take away from, you know, from this art. You can look at it on a very superficial level as beauty. You can take it a little deeper into the scientific side of things. You can think about it philosophically and, and from an environmental point of view and scarcity, or you can really take it into uh, metaphysical and spiritual realm. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's quite a deep topic, let's say. Yes, for sure, very deep, very deep, and but it, it's still uh, sometimes the the thing that 
looks the most simple that are the most deep and it's maybe the the case of water when i see your work it makes me feel feel this yeah so you have your own nft collection your founder of a nft collection and web3 has lots of opportunities for artists uh, like the fact that you have a, a worldwide catchment areas the payments are facilitated by a cryptocurrency because it's instantly the payment is instantly available but the way web3 works and and the codes of web3 are very different from the um, traditional art what as a very experienced uh, web3 artist what advice would you give to an artist who would like to come into web3 i mean i think one of the big differences between being an artist and I, and I don't have any experience being an artist in web too but i you know i've seen i see it and and have heard and actually have a few friends that are artists i think one of the big big advantages of web3 is that the artist and the consumer of the art the patron the client whatever you might want to call them they can have a direct connection and in the traditional art world where you have you know somebody who's represented by a gallery or maybe they have you know they have an agent the connection between the artist and the patron is almost discouraged you know there's middlemen basically and they like to keep people separate because i think they realize that if if the artist and the consumer started having you know a dialogue and, and a good relationship they might just deal directly and somebody might get frozen out of the picture so to me that's big big difference and and that's one of the beautiful things that i see in web3 is the accessibility to the artist i invite people to contact me to ask questions to try and find out what my inspiration was for this picture or why did you call it that or anything that they want to talk about and i don't think that happened very much in web2 and so i see that as a big difference in terms of advice i guess i think it's like anything else it's building up a community it's being accessible being open to talking about it and And one of the tougher things is, you know, promoting yourself. You do have to promote yourself and your work, and that's not always easy to do. But I guess I would just say, look, just dive in and do it, and you'll find that the people that you're dealing with are open to it and open to you and interested and excited, and they want to feel the excitement that you feel and yeah so share share of yourself and be open and try not to be shy and i think it's rewarding for both sides yeah yes indeed that, that's something i see in web3 uh, those days there is an incredible emulation of uh, artists connecting directly to the collectors on the uh, on social and yeah yeah so web3 also yeah offer the opportunity for artists to to deal directly with the the collectors indeed you're not only an artist you're also an nft collector and you have a, an amazing collection you're involved in several projects in a moonbird in a 
Undead, of course, you're uh, one of the biggest genuine undead collector. You are a paper holder also. You you have um, five five or six of those. What attracted you on those collection? You you seem to like uh, very much pixel art. Yeah, you know, I started my love of pixel art. I think started with Moonbirds, probably, or maybe Chimpers. I'm not sure actually which which came first. But I have to say, I mean, Genuine Undead, you know, it, it captured my heart very, very early on. You know, not as soon as it launched because I missed the launch and, you know, the, the middle of August sort of excitement, but I jumped in a couple of weeks after. So very, very late in August is when I bought my first, my first Genuine Undead NFT. And... Yeah, I mean, it's been an incredible ride ever since then. I never imagined that I would be as involved with the project as I am. But we talked about community earlier, a few minutes ago. And of course, other than, you know, the spectacular pixel art with its, you know, the use of color and shading and just the beauty of it itself and all of the you know, the references, the historical references and the pop culture references and and everything imaginable is actually in the collection one way or another. It was really the, the community that drew me in. You know, I got on some of their spaces very early on and Dr. Boom and Mason uh, were the sort of the driving forces at the time And I was really, really impressed with everything that I heard. And, you know, I started speaking up a little bit. I wasn't one to really speak on space as much. But, you know, quite early on, I felt comfortable to become a speaker and to share some of my thoughts and, and opinions. And then quite early on, I was invited to, you know, to join. And I was working with the Literature Council and writing articles and and sort of dealing with written materials that were being prepared. And that sort of developed into me writing a lot of Twitter threads on the art, mainly on the art, but also the governance and our, you know, I was involved in formulating the governance document that we run ourselves by or ran ourselves by because there's been some changes lately. But You know, my involvement in Web3 before Genuine Undead was, it was interesting, but it was really when Genuine Undead came along that I dived in with both feet. And it's really taken over my life in many ways. And that's another part of the reason that my photography collection hasn't launched yet is it's taken a bit of a backseat to the work and the passion that I've been feeling with Genuine Undead. Yes, let's open a parenthesis uh, real quick because uh, you, you run a um, Twitter profile very active about Genuine Undead and you were as a PFP the face, legendary one. That's absolutely amazing. I want to let the audience chance if they don't uh, already to, to follow you. It's at liquidity underscore art. Indeed, you are... I mean, I, I know you for the trades. I, I got a notice on, on your profile, of course, because you wrote those uh, amazing trades about you got the four on the floor, 
you talk about the traits and indeed the pop culture reference. What are your favorite traits on the collection? For me, for example, I like the paper boys, I like the watch cap, I like the chrome. What are your favorite traits on, on this collection? Well, it's kind of interesting because it's changed a lot, you know, over the months. You know, first of all, I would say that I'm I like classics a little bit more than the cyberpunks. For for those people that don't know, our our collection is split basically two thirds classics and one third cyberpunks, and the classics are as you would expect more classic looking. They they represent the past, whereas the cyberpunks represent the future. So they're a, a little more science fiction and they have some sort of more almost fantastical kind of elements to them. So, you know, I was in the beginning very, very much of a, of a classics fan, but then over time, some of the cyber, the cyberpunk traits really, really grew on me. And in fact, If you look at the hair, you know, the, the headwear, for instance, I love Warrior, which is the, the pink hair. I love Silver Tear, which is the, sort of the gray, short gray hair or white hair. And those are both, those are both cyberpunk traits. So, you know, and in fact, I think if you said to me, you know, like if I had to pick my favorite eyewear, it's probably Simple Shades which is, again, a cyber trait. So even though I would classify myself as somebody who loves the classics, I think I really, somewhere in me, uh, have this, this uh, cyberpunk that wants to come out. I really, really do, I really do love the, the cyberpunk traits, a lot of them, yeah. That's interesting because uh, I feel the same. I first loved the uh, cyberpunks and especially as it were the Sakuras and the uh, Flaming Punks. And then I went deep into the collection and I invite those who don't know much the collection to go on OpenSea to watch it. And uh, now I am obsessed with the tea headwear. And that's because the tea headwear is actually the hairstyle from the movie Taxi Driver. And uh, the movie Taxi Driver was released uh, the year I was born, so <laughs> I'm obsessed with that. Uh -huh. and, I, and, I, and I want now I want to to buy one, and I know I shouldn't uh, say that because uh, it's some kind of rule in the community. You never <laughs> tell which one you want to get because uh, the price will uh, will increase. <laughs> Somebody will grab it before you can. But that's funny that you mentioned that about the about tea headwear because that was some it was something I never liked at all. I just I don't know why exactly, you know, Mr. T, I think it's you know, maybe taxi driver is part of the inspiration, but also Mr. T, the TV character from from the 70s, I think, was also the inspiration, I think, for that. And yeah, I just didn't, I really just didn't like them. Although I got one of my quite early and one of my top three genuine dead uh, NFTs is, has a T as his, as his hairdo. But then at some point I discovered these T's and then I absolutely fell in love with them. And I got bought like in a row, I think, including a jungle paint with a tea head to wear. So, and now I really love them. I mean, I think that's some of the beauty of this collection is that, you know, it has so much depth 
that you you'll find yourself going through phases and waves and and seeing things that at the beginning maybe you didn't like and all of a sudden you discover them and and you love them and yeah it's an amazing collection with a lot of stamina let's say you are one of the most important member of the community for those who don't know yet um, this collection how would you describe it and how would you do would you describe the way the community works well i think the community is really and of course it's the art the art brings people in the art is something that we talk about in the community all the time we all vibe with it we all you know we all see different things and and we love to talk about it but what i find really amazing about the community is the positivity and the fact that really people lift each other up and support each other and you know if there's disagreement and of course that's going to happen but people try and you know find a way to you know to get along and just to really be positive and encouraging of one another and to be there for one another supportive and so those are i mean for me those are the the really beautiful elements of our community and we have such diversity we've got people from all you know all professions all walks of life so many different countries it's completely uh, spread across the globe and so there's so much variety and excitement you jump into our discord and you're you know you're always going to have somebody interesting there so it's it's a really it's a really great community and it's a strong community and i think that's that's what it takes to to survive in this space is that kind of cohesion and sticking together as a community we are uh, both and uh, like all the community member lovers of the this pix genuine and that pixel art uh, in september last year something happened that was the the burn of the legendary war dr boom uh, wrote uh, an amazing uh, article on uh, medium about that how did you felt about this story You know, it took me a while to sort of get it, to see the significance of that happened just as I was joining the community and just as I was starting to get in in a little bit deeper and, you know, listening to spaces and going in the Discord a little bit more. So I didn't really, at the time, understand the significance of it. And the article that, that Dr. Broom wrote, actually, I, I helped him revise that. And so that really you know gave me an understanding of his perspective of it and i have to agree with him you know it it was like maybe the first real example of art on the blockchain so it was using the blockchain using the mechanics of the blockchain you know sending a piece of art to be burned and sending a message with that you know having that action represent more than the action having it represent and make a statement that you know war is obviously not something that should be promoted it's something that should be stamped out it's you know nobody should own war is how you know the owner of the i believe the owner of the nft expressed it 
as he was, you know, sending it to the burn address. So it's a fascinating example, and it's it's such a it was such a big event, and it remains a very very big event in our you know in our overall history in our in our lore. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how it will be portrayed and represented in the lore that's being created by by Mason and by Stephen, and it'll be illustrated by Gimmicks, you know, three of our powerhouse members that are working on putting together this lore. So it'll be really, really interesting to see how that event is portrayed. But it was definitely a very, very significant story, a part of the story of Genuine Undead. Yes, for sure. The fact that to destroy a piece of art can be an act of art. And uh, Banksy uh, destroyed one of his paintings. I think it was back in 2018. But this story about the burn of the legendary war, the burn of the war, is very poetic indeed. And uh, Dr. Boom explained this very well in his article. Is there uh, something you want to to add? Because... Uh, It's almost one hour and uh, 30 minutes. Is there uh, something you want to talk about? Nothing really comes to mind. I guess I would invite people to reach out if they have any questions of me. As I said earlier, I like to be you know, available to people who have questions or you know, want to share a deeper understanding of anything that we've talked about today, whether that's the, you know, my liquidity art photography collection that's upcoming. I do have a few pieces that are available on uh, Sloika and on Foundation. So if there's anybody who really thinks they, they love this art and they want to collect a piece, then that's certainly something that can be arranged until the collection itself is launched. And I hope I hope that's not going to be too far down the road. But also, if anybody wants to talk about Genuine Undead, or they want to talk about Bali, you know, how how is it to live in Bali? Any of the things that, you know, that we've talked about today, I would just invite people to reach out. You can DM me on, on Twitter, or you can probably find an email address, or on the Discord. My Discord server is, is pretty quiet because the collection hasn't really launched yet and we'll try and sort of rev things up a little bit as we move towards the launch but definitely if you if drop something drop a message in there i will see it and i will respond and i'd be happy to talk to anybody about any of these topics of course we will uh, share on the text just uh, just beside uh, the podcast uh, your social your uh, instagram profile your Twitter profile and uh, your link tree as well. And uh, the link for your uh, Discord server, the Liquidity Art one is in your uh, link tree. I got a, a last question to ask you. I have some uh, piece of art from Bali at home and uh, may maybe I, I will uh, send you some some pictures just, just to, to show you. I got a last question to ask you. How do you see, because you know people uh, sometimes, uh, I mean, every year uh, and maybe every month, people come with uh, thoughts like, uh, okay, Web3 is over, crypto, cryptos are down. How do you see Web3 in the next five years? Well, I'm not one of the believers, or I'm, I am a believer in Web3. I'm not one of the people that thinks that, that it's dead. I think it's uh, it's an explosion that is, has just 
begun, actually. And sure, we're in a bear market. And yes, there are ups and downs. There are ebbs and flows. But I very much believe it's alive and well and will, you know, will become and continue to be a real powerhouse in the artistic scene, because I think our world is heading more into the digital realm and this fits perfectly. So, you know, I think there will be changes, just like we're seeing in in crypto right now. We're seeing, you know, the SEC is becoming active and aggressive, and we're going to see regulation there, which is something that, you know, three or four, five years ago, everybody was fighting tooth and nail. It's like, no, you know, we're decentralized. We're independent. We want sovereignty of our assets. We want sovereignty of our lives. You know, that was the driving ethos of the cryptocurrency space. And now people are realizing that in order for it to flourish as a space and for it to have adoption by, you know, mass adoption, there needs to be regulation. There needs to be certainty. There needs to be safety. And you know, the NFT space is just a little bit behind the crypto space when it comes to that. You know, we're still in in the, almost the Wild West and people are getting, you know, scammed and rugged and hacked left, right and center. And, you know, that needs to change if we're going to bring hundreds of thousands and millions of people into this space. And it will happen over time. It'll be probably a bit of a difficult transition, but I have no doubt that it will have a positive influence in the long run. And I think that the space will continue to grow and there will be things happening in a year that we had and have no way of predicting even now. You know, things things just happen so very quickly and sometimes they're just flash, a little flash in the pan and then they move on to the next, you know, the next fad. But some some things and some elements of some things stick around. And I think it's going to be an exciting and vibrant space for decades to come. Yeah, for sure. Bullrun is coming. <laughs> right. We're all looking forward to that. Thank you very much for discussion. It was amazing. Thank you very much. And that never die. So great well, things are to come. You're most welcome. Thank you for, and I understand this is your first recording, whether it's the first one that gets broadcast or not. I'm honored to, you know, to have been asked to do this and I'm thrilled that I got to be the first recording. So you're most welcome and thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to talk about all these things. Thank you very much, Max. Thank you very much. All right. Bye for now. Bye for now.